The story is told about a young father, and he was in his house, and he kept hearing all this noise in his backyard, and he knew his daughter was in the backyard playing with her playmates, and he just kept hearing them get louder and louder, and they were arguing and fighting with each other, and so the dad goes to the back door, and he opens the door, and he said, Darling, he said, uh, what is going on outside here? And she looked, the little girl looked up at her daddy, and she said, Daddy, we're just playing church. Now, ladies, this is a very sad, but unfortunately, a very true indictment on some of our churches today. But nothing new is under the sun, right? You know, we have been going through the epistle of James since September, and we already know that there were some issues at the church at Jerusalem Remember in chapter 2, he rebuked them for their sin of partiality. Remember some were coming in the doors of the church and they weren't dressed so great. They were in shabby clothes and then others would come in with fine jewelry and rich clothing and they were showing favoritism to the poor and the rich by dishonoring the poor. We also discovered that there were many uh, conflicts between the poor and the rich. And when we get into chapter 5, we're going to discover that the rich were persecuting the poor. We also discovered when we started chapter 3 that many were competing for the office of teacher, and so there was dissension there. But James is not the only New Testament church writer that talks about dissension in churches. If you've ever read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is a little heated about the church at Corinth. He addresses them, and here's what he calls their conflicts. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbiting, whispering, conceits, and tumults. In fact, he comes to the end of the letter and he says, You know, guys, I stand in doubt of you. I don't even think you guys are saved. Examine yourselves to be, see if you're in the faith. Why? Because they were fighting. They were biting and devouring each other. Last year, we looked at two women when we studied the Epistle of Philippians. Remember Yodi and Syndicate, those squabbling women? They couldn't get along, so much so that, that Paul says, hey, one of you guys help these women. They can't seem to get along with one another. There are problems in churches. There were problems in churches in the New Testament times, and ladies, there are problems even today. In fact, as Debbie and I travel around and I speak to different ladies at conferences and retreats, I was thinking today, I don't think I have been to a conference or a retreat yet that I, have had not, I haven't had at least one woman come up to me privately and say, isn't this probably true, can I talk to you? And they want to discuss some problem going on in their church, and they want help or counsel. I've heard of churches that fight over the stupidest things, sometimes just, you know, the color of the carpet or the, how we're going to paint the walls or the, you know, the piano or the, you know, we have drums or we don't have drums. Where do these discords come from that go on in our church? What is the real reason behind hostilities? Well, people, people often blame their environment, their circumstances. But ladies, it's not external conditions, but rather internal selfish desires that start conflicts. And the epistle of James this evening is going to give us some answers why we have conflicts. And I want to give you a hint. The answer lies within your heart. It's within yourself. It's not from the outside. It's not from the world. In fact, notice what James says as he starts chapter 4. 
From where come wars and fightings among you? Come they not here even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lust. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And we're going to stop there tonight and you're saying, good, that's enough for one evening. Wait till we get to next week. Now, tonight we're going to see two basic things. First of all, we're going to see a reason for their worldliness. A reason for their worldliness in verses 1 to 3. Actually, we're going to see several reasons for their worldliness. And then lastly, we're going to see the rebuke for their worldliness. James gives them a sharp rebuke in in verse 4. So first, the reason for their worldliness in verses 1 to 3. And then the rebuke for their worldliness in verse 4. James starts out by saying, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, you might think, wow, this is, a, this is a sharp contrast and a sudden transition from last week when we talked about, you know, those that sow fruits of righteousness and they do it in peace and they go about making peace. And now all of a sudden James is talking about war. I mean, why the sudden contrast? Why the sudden transition? Well, James is obviously aware that not all the brethren are peacemakers. And believe me, ladies, we have been in ministry for 33 years now, and I say amen to that. I agree with Pastor James. Not all the brethren are peacemakers. Many times we see fights and wars among Christian brethren. And ladies, the reality is that Satan uses some Christians to sow discord in churches. So, James asked, where do these wars and fights come from? Now, when he's talking about wars, the Greek word here is a prolonged state of hostility. James is not talking about international war, okay? He's not talking about the Vietnam War or World War I or World War II or even the war war we are fighting right now in Iraq. He's not talking about that. He's talking about an, an internal prolonged state of hostility. It's interesting. James says these wars are among you, indicating they are in you. Now, ladies, you know what that is. It's that inner feeling of frustration and agitation. Have you ever had it? Sure, you have. Shake your head yes. All of you have had that. That is not from God. That inner agitation, frustration. Well, James not only calls them fight or wars, he says fights. Where do these wars and fights come from? The Greek word here for fights means contentions. Now, James doesn't tell us what they were fighting about. But we can only assume that it's what we've already discovered as we have studied the first three chapters. And so James asks a question, where do these wars, where do these fights come from? Did your upbringing make you like this? Is it because you're going through the change of life? Or because you're PMS? Or because your husband didn't buy you flowers for Valentine's Day? Or is it because your kids aren't acting the way you want them to act? No. Look at the answer. Do they not come even of your own lusts that war in your members? Did you catch that? Your lust that war in your members? In fact, the Greek word here in the King James, when it says your desire there, 
is hedonin, which we get our English word hedonism. Know what he's saying? He's referring to our sinful pleasures, our self-gratification, ministering to ourself. Ladies, it's that sinful desire for satisfaction, which is self-seeking. That is why we fight with one another, so we can get our own way, right? And this is usually done at the expense of others. Isn't that why we argue? Isn't that why we fight? We want our way. For example, we may not like the way our husband wants to do something, so we fight and we war and we keep on doing it and we keep nagging and we keep manipulating until we get our own way. Or maybe, you know, you're, the church you go to, you don't like the way things are done. You don't like the way the music is. You don't like the way the you know, eldership is set up or something, and so you manipulate and you argue and you complain and you call the pastor's wife or you call the pastor and you complain and argue as if your way is the right way. The desire for pleasure, the desires to have our own way, notice what James says. He says it creates war in your members. This talks about your flesh constantly fighting to have your own way. In fact, the two words that war depicts the desires for pleasure as soldiers when they would carry out a military campaign. And you know what they would go out and do if you read in the Old Testament? They would go out and fight and get in those wars. You know what they were wanting to get? The booty, the loot, man. They're wanting the stuff. It was that sinful desire, that pleasure for wanting something to satisfy their cravings. Now, when James talks about lust that war in your members, the members here are not the members in your church, Okay. And they're not the members in your family. And they're not the members of your human body like your hands and your feet. These members are called your drives, your lusts, your compulsions. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 7. Remember, he says, talks about his flesh warring against the spirit. He says, I don't know what is going on with me. The good that I want to do, I don't do the evil that I hate, that I end up doing. He talks about the warring that's going on in his members, inside of him. For example, maybe it's sexual pleasures you are fighting for. You're warring in your members. Or material pleasures that you are warring for. Or maybe you're warring for a way to exalt yourself. A person who has this going on is a person who is willing to, un, to, not, to not yield. In fact, I remember before Christ, um, I would war a lot over my personal schedule. I didn't like anybody interrupting my day. In fact, before my redemption, my husband used to say he was going to put on my tombstone. She did it her way. That, what an awful indictment on my life before Christ. I mean, I was totally inflexible with my schedule. I warred. For my own sinful pleasure or satisfaction. I like what Elizabeth Elliot says. She says, interruptions are divine appointments. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord used that to help me change my attitude. So every time now, in fact, yesterday I was trying to get all these things done before Cindy came and I didn't get quite everything done. And I thought, you know what? I got done exactly what God wanted me to get done today. Now, you know, 30 years ago, I never would have thought that. Well, these corrupt passions, James says, are the cause of wars and fights. And he expands this thought of evil warring in our members in verse 2. Notice what he says. You lust and you do not have. 
Now, the word for lust here means to long for, to strongly desire, or to crave for something. Now, what they were lusting for, what they were craving, again, James doesn't tell us what it is. Maybe it's a good thing he doesn't. He says, you lust and you don't have. You lust and you want something and you're longing for it and you don't get it. Do you know lusting never brings about a desired satisfaction, does it? Isn't that true? You know, sometimes we lust over something as simple as dining at a particular restaurant. And then when we get there, we can't even enjoy the meal because we had to sin to get there. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, I don't care, darling, where we eat. No, I don't want to go there. Well, no, I don't care, darling, where No, I don't want to go there. You finally get your way, and then you can't enjoy your food because you what? You had to sin to get there. In fact, it reminds me of what the psalmist says about the Israelites. It says they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and God tested them. And listen to what it says. He gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. They didn't like the manna. We don't like this stuff. Okay, I'll give you some quail. Then what starts coming out their noses and their, you know, they were sick of it. So he gave them what they wanted. Has God ever done that in your life? Gives you what you want. You keep begging and and fighting with him about it. So he gives it to you, but sends leanness to your soul. That's no fun. Amnon, he's another example of lusting for something, and yet it did not bring about desired satisfaction. Remember, he raped his his half-sister Tamar. Remember, he loved her, and it says, you know, he just, he was crazy about her, so he connives his plan. I'll feign like I'm sick. Oh, I'm so sick. So, Tamar, please bring me some food. You know, bring it to me. I don't feel well. So she comes in to feed her brother, and he says, close the door and everyone go out. And what does he do? He rapes her. He lusted after her. You know what the scripture says? That after he raped her, he said he hated her so exceedingly that the hatred that he hated her with was greater than the love that he had for her before he raped her. He lusted after something. He warred. He fighted. Fight. So if you can't get your way by lusting, James says the next step is you kill. You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have. This word kill means that you're bent on murder, which which indicates a murderous spirit. In fact, James could be describing two things. He could be describing actual murder, or he could be talking about a spirit of murder. Remember back in our first lesson, we discovered that James is writing to Christian Jews, some who are former zealots, and they would have accepted murder as a religious way to solve disagreements. Look at Acts chapter 9-1. That was a problem with Saul. He thought that he was being righteous by killing Christians. So it could be literal murder. But it could mean just a spirit of murder. You might say, well, Susan, I would never stoop that low. I mean, come on, murder someone to get my way? Oh, really? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He tells us something very different. I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rekha shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fools shall be in danger of hellfire. You know, Jesus is equating that anger that you feel in your heart towards someone. He's equating it with murder. You might never murder anyone, but you'll murder in your heart. In fact, the aged old apostle John says, if we hate our brother, we're a murderer. Did you know that? 
He says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's a scary passage. And it should cause all of us to check our heart every time we have that inner agitation and frustration towards someone because we don't get our own way. It's very serious sin. In fact, James is forcing his readers to realize the depth of their evil in their bitter hatred toward each other. So he goes on to say, you murder and you covet and you can't obtain. All that coveting, all that lusting, all that anger in your heart, you still don't get what you want, do you? Ladies, all wars, all fights could be avoided if we would just be content with the things that we have. We need to go back to Philippians last year, right? Learning to be content, maybe we need to, you can download that on my website and just listen to it. If we would learn to be content with what we have, we wouldn't argue. Maybe you have your heart set on a new car, new home, new dress, piece of jewelry, maybe some position at work. But in order to get what you want, you argue and you fight and you sometimes use unethical means. Many times such desires make us miserable, don't they? And at the same time create an awareness of the struggle within our members. In fact, I mentioned to you all ago that Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 7. I want to read this to you. Don't turn there. But this is in the Phillips translation, which I think is a little bit easier version to understand his struggle. He says, my own behavior baffles me. For I find myself doing what I really hate, but not doing what I really want to do. I often find that I have the will to do good, but not the power. That is, I don't accomplish the good I set out to do and the evil I don't really want to do. I find I'm always doing it. Yet if I do things I don't really want to do, it's not I who do them, but the sin which has made its home within me. My experience of the law is that I want to do good. Only evil is within my reach. For I'm in a hearty agreement with God's law as far as my inner self is concerned. But then I find another law in my bodily members, which is in continual conflict with the law, which my mind approves and makes me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is inherent in my mortal body. For left to myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but in my unspiritual nature, I serve the law of sin. It's an agonizing situation. Who can set me free from the prison of this mortal body? I thank God there is a way out. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ladies, there is a way out when you have that inner struggle. In fact, Paul tells us there's no temptation taken us, but such is common to man. God is faithful. He will make a way of escape so you can bear it. But you know the problem is most of us in this room, when we are tempted to become angry or frustrated or to war with each other, we don't want to take the escape patch that God's provided. There is a way of escape. And you know why we don't want to go down the escape hatch? Because we like to sin. Sin has pleasure for a season. So what happens when we give in to that desire of our heart? Well, there's war within our souls and there's no satisfaction in our heart. And notice what James says in verse 2. You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have. You cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Yet you have not because you ask not. James says we fight, we war, we have bitter quarrels, we have disputes, yet we do not have because we don't ask. You know what he's saying? We fail to ask God for things that our hearts are set on. Why? Well, maybe because we know our desires are selfish, right? So we don't want to sit down and say, okay, God, you know, 
I really would like this because we know it's selfish. But ladies, if there's something that you're really desiring, the way to obtain anything really is to ask God, right? And if he withholds that request from you, that is what is best for us. That's why this evening when I prayed for all those people, and my daughter is included in that, that's a hard prayer, but whatever the Lord's will is, right? He knows what is best. I'm afraid many of us have lost the vision of what prayer is about, and we're not going to talk about it much tonight because we're going to get into that into chapter 5 because we're going to have several lessons on prayer. But ladies, just briefly, do the things that you're asking of God bring just pleasure and relief in your life? Or do you really want God to be glorified through your prayer life? Do we say, thy will be done or my will be done? In fact, I like what Elizabeth Elliot says. She says, I've been praying for something I wanted very badly. It seemed like a good thing to have, a thing that would make life more pleasant than it is and would not in any way hinder my work. God didn't give it to me. Why? I don't know all of his reasons, of course. The God who orchestrates the universe has a good many things to consider that have not occurred to me, and it's well that I leave them to him. But one thing I understand He offers me holiness at the price of relinquishing my own will. Do you honestly want to know me, he says? I say yes. Then do what I say, he says. Do it when you understand it. Do it when you don't understand it. Take what I give you. Be willing not to have what I do not give you. The very relinquishment of this thing that you so urgently desire is a true demonstration of the sincerity of your long life prayer. Thy will be done. So she goes on to say, instead of hammering on heaven's door for something which is now quite clear God doesn't want me to have, I make my desire an offering. The longed-for thing is material for sacrifice. Here, Lord, it's yours. He will, I believe, accept the offering. He will transform it into something redemptive. He may perhaps give it back as he did Isaac to Abraham, but he will know that I fully intend to obey him. Ladies, that's the bigger issue, isn't it? Obedience is the bigger issue. We need to ask ourselves, what does God want? Will this glorify him? In fact, Maggie and I are reading through the Bible together, and we just read Hannah's prayer. And I stopped and I looked at that, and I thought, what a great thing. Here, this woman, she wants to have a son. And it's not, you know, so she won't have a stigma anymore. It's not so she'll have some self-gratification or she'll have this cute little thing to take to the market every day. But she wanted a son to give back to the Lord. She said, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I thought that is a very unselfish prayer request. Not what Samuel could do for her, what he could do for God. You know, sometimes we don't have because we don't ask for the right things. Ladies, God is not a genie in heaven, okay? He's not a genie up there who's going to, you know, you're just going to rub that little lamp, and he's going to say, yes, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. He is God Almighty. The Apostle Paul says, O man, who are you to reply against God? Does not the potter have power over the clay? Ladies, God is the potter, and we saw a great example of that here Sunday, didn't we? God is the potter. You're the clay, right? And you can't say, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? In fact, in his letter to the Romans, Paul quoted the Old Testament scriptures for who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Ladies, have you been his counselor? I haven't. I wouldn't even think about it. 
You know, sometimes we're ignorant in our requests because we don't know God's word. I find a lot of women don't know how to pray because they don't even know what God's word says. I was counseling a woman yesterday, and I told Doug when it was over, I said, I just couldn't believe everything I was listening to. It was just unbelievable in one hour. And this is a woman who teaches Sunday school in her church, and I'm like, shouldn't be teaching Sunday school. In fact, I'll never forget when someone told me one time they were divorcing their husband because they prayed, and they said, you know, I prayed. And I told God, I asked God to stop me if it wasn't his will. And I said, well, it's already been revealed in this book what his will is because there's two grounds for divorce, adultery or if your husband's an unbeliever and he leaves you. And you don't have either one of those grounds. So sometimes we don't even know how to pray because we don't know what God's word already has revealed to us. Sometimes we just lack sensitivity to the spirit. James says, you fight and war, you have not because you ask. He goes, you ask in verse 3 and receive not because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your pleasures. Now James tells them, even though they ask, the requests are inappropriate. In fact, the first statement is not meant to imply they weren't asking at all, but they were not asking in a true sense. And ladies, we've all prayed that way, haven't we? I have. There are many times I've prayed that I know it's not according to God's will because it's something I want, right? You know, there's some prayers that we pray that God will not answer. John 5, 14 says this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, anybody know the next phrase? According to his will, he hears us. 1 John three twenty two says, whatever we ask, we receive of him because what? We keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Lady, in order to receive anything from God, we must keep his commandments. We must do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And we must pray in accordance to his will and for his glory. In fact, the psalmist says, if you regard iniquity in your heart, God will not hear your prayers. He won't hear them. There are many hindrances to prayer. I said we weren't going to take a lesson tonight on prayer, but we're, we're going to do a little bit. A wise woman of the word will study the word of God to know in order to know that her praying is not being hindered. Obviously, these readers were not asking according to God's will, and they were praying with selfish intentions. In fact, James says you're asking amiss. It's a very strong adverb, which means in a base way or a mean way. They were asking for selfish things. In fact, I'll never forget one time I heard a televangelist. I saw him on the air about five seconds and turned off, and he goes, God, I demand you to do this. And I was like, whoa, and I was waiting for the TV to blow up, you know. That's what they were doing, asking a miss. Give me this. Give me that. Turn on your TV tonight. You can see some of them. It's horrible, awful indictment. James says you're praying this way in order that you can spend it on your pleasure. Waste it on what you want. Squander it. Consume it. Anything that satisfies your flesh. In fact, the prodigal son, he's a great illustration of this, isn't he? He went out, took all of his money his dad gave him. What? He wasted on riotous living. Finally, he goes, you know what? I think I'll go home. I'm eating, you know, pig slop. I get better food at home. For example, you might be asking for wealth this evening. I'm sure several of us are. These are not easy times, right? In fact, Cindy was telling us in California right now, things are so bad that there's like five, six multiple families living with one another. In fact, I don't know if you know the state of California is going to file bankruptcy. Things are bad. 
Things are bad for a lot of people everywhere financially. And so you might be asking the Lord for financial means tonight. But ladies, if it's not for the purpose, you know, of feeding the hungry or the destitute, but if you want, you know, you're just asking for money for a new car, a new house, a new dress, that's not a good reason. It's the wrong motive. Or maybe you're asking God to not, tonight to stop the mouth and the evil deeds of your enemies. You know, maybe someone slandered you at work, or maybe your husband's giving you a hard time. But your motive is vengeance, not for the glory of God. Evidently, the Jewish Christians here, their self-centered desires had invaded their prayer life and perverted their relationship to God. Ladies, anything that tends to put self before Christ and before others can be considered, as James says here, asking amiss, selfishly. I would encourage you this week, evaluate your prayer life. Ask yourself these questions. What am I asking God for, and what are my real reasons behind these requests? Have you ever done that as you're praying? Lord, what am I asking you for, and why am I asking you for this? Listen to yourself pray. See what you're asking from God. Well, what is the reason for their worldliness? Well, they were fighting and warring, which came from their coveting, lustful hearts. The exposure of their true worldliness, their fighting and warring with each other, is now followed by a very sharp rebuke. And by the way, these thoughts are not disconnected. Because one who is fighting and warring and lusting, ladies, is showing signs of a person, if they continue to do this, that is not redeemed. It's a characteristic of a worldly person. In fact, James addresses the root cause of what is wrong in verse 4. Notice what he says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. You might say, wow, these are really strong words. Yes, they are. In fact, I don't know what your translation says, but in the original, the word adulterer is not in the original text, only adulteresses. And it's not because James is a male chauvinist and he's only putting the female gender in there. But in the New Testament times, in fact, if you, did you do your homework in Ezekiel 23? Anytime Israel became unfaithful to God, she was always referred to as a woman. It was always an adulteress. And so the Jew would understand this terminology. James says, you adulteress. In fact, even we come to the New Testament, what, what are we referred to as New Testament Christians? The bride. It's the female. We are the bride of Christ. We are married to Christ. We are his bride. And ladies, to love the world by fighting and arguing and lusting for things that you shouldn't have is showing that you are unfaithful to him. And so after he calls them adulteresses, notice what he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In fact, he's kind of surprised. He's kind of shocked that he even has to say this. Do you not know this? James is rebuking them and calling them to repent. You might say, well, what is friendship with the world? Well, it means to have a love or an affection for the world. In fact, their apparent friendship of the world just further pointed to their pleasure-seeking activity that he was already talking about in verses 1 to 3. Now, ladies, when James is talking about being a friend of the world, he's not talking about just rubbing shoulders you know, casually with the world, but falling in love with the world. 
In fact, do any of you remember back to James 1.27? True religion is this, visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unspotted from what? The world. That's true religion. Ladies, if you walk with the Lord this evening and you abide in his presence throughout the day, even though you live in this sinful world, and ladies, listen, every time I turn on the news, I end up turning it off. I can't hardly stand to watch the news anymore. I used to be kind of a news junkie. Not anymore. I just keep thinking, you know, how much further down, down, down can we go? We're just spiraling down so fast. It's like, Lord, you surely you're coming back soon. So we're in this world. We have to live in this sinful world. But even though we do, we must remain without blemish. We must remain unspotted. And you can do that if your affections are not attached to the world. James says, if you have friendship with the world, you're at war with God, he says. If you want to be a friend of the world, notice what he says, you make yourself an enemy of God. In fact, the whoever in the Greek here is emphatic, and it indicates a deliberate choice to give allegiance to the world rather than to God. It's the very opposite of Abraham, who we saw in chapter 2 was what? A friend of God. He was a friend of God. Demas in the New Testament is a good illustration who one who deserted the cause of Christ because he what? Demas has forsaken me, having what? Loved this present world. Ladies, if your life this evening is showing friendship with the world by those things that we just mentioned in verses 1 to 3, you are diametrically opposed to God. You are at war with God. You can't embrace God and the world at the same time. We've already seen that in James, right? When it comes to your allegiance to Christ, there can be no gray area in a believer's life. Either you belong to God or you belong to the world. In fact, there's been many times I've wanted to tell someone, just either, either live for Christ or live for the world, but don't live for both. Just get off the fence. If you're going to live for Satan, live for him. Live full out for him. But don't live in the middle. I think one of the worst crimes imaginable is to be a traitor to one's country, Right? Worse than that is for a believer to betray God by rending allegiance to the world which opposes him. Ladies, if you love the world this evening, you hate God. I didn't say that. James says it. He says you are an enemy of God. You hate him, and therefore you can't belong to him. Didn't John write, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you hear that? The love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the things we've talked about tonight, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is what? It's not of the Father. It's of the world. Can't have it both ways. So James rebukes them for their worldliness. He calls them adulteresses who are at war with God and are friends with the world. Next week when we come back, we're going to see how it really calls them to salvation. The text we're going to deal with Next Tuesday night is the one that I want preached at my funeral. So it doesn't have to be exactly the lesson I give, but that's the text that I want preached at my funeral because it's a call to salvation. He's calling them to repent. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Now, some of you tonight might have an erroneous idea of worldliness. Some of you might say, well, I know what worldliness is, you know. It's going to movies, watching television, having a tattoo, having a pierced nose, you know. Wearing too much jewelry, bright colored clothes. When I was growing up, it was mixed swimming. You know, boys and girls didn't swim in the same pool together because that was sinful. That was worldly. 
But ladies, James approaches worldliness a little bit different, doesn't he? Questionable practices are really just the symptoms. I like it because James focuses on the disease. James does not view worldliness as a list of taboos, you know, do this, don't do that. But it's an attitude. It's an attitude of unfaithfulness to God. It's the condition of one whose heart is lured away from loyalty to God to attractions to the world, and it shows itself in lusting and fighting and warring and wanting things your own way. Either we're oriented towards God or the world. You can't have it both ways. The worldly person is a self-centered person. And James seems to be pleading. I don't know if you sense it here. He's like, what's happened to you? Where is your spirit of discernment? What's happened to your godly wisdom that we talked about in chapter 3? Do you no longer know the difference between good and evil? Do you no longer know the difference between righteousness and sin? Have you completely lost your sense of values? Ladies, it's exactly what was happening in James' day, and it's happening in our day, and it's happening more and more and faster and faster. If you are a friend of the world this evening, then you are God's enemy. And we're going to see, as I said next week, that he's going to call these friends of the world to repent. He's going to call them to salvation. Worldliness is another test to see if you're in the faith. That's what we're studying this year, right? With the master in the school of tested faith. If you love the world, your faith in God is suspect. Who are you fighting with tonight and what are you fighting about? Is it so you can obtain your own selfish desires? Are you committing spiritual adultery by being a friend of the world? These are very serious issues for us to consider. In fact, a favorite quote of my husband's that I have in my den at home is this by C.S. Lewis. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall never see heaven. If we accept heaven, we will not be able to retain even the smallest and the most intimate souvenirs of hell. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we love you and we do not want to rub shoulders with the world. We don't want to be worldly. We don't want to be friends of the world because we know if we are, then we are an enemy of yours. And we know your word says that if we love the world, the love of God is not in us. We can't have it both ways. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times in our life when we fight and war and devour each other and lust and crave for things that we know are wrong and sinful. Lord, things that we ask you for, we want so that we can spend it on our own pleasures or so that we'll have some good pat on the back or some great feeling. And Lord, we have it all wrong. And I pray that you would take these words this evening and do a work in our heart. Lord, and cleanse us from any spiritual adultery. I pray if there's any woman here this evening that has fallen completely in love with the world, whose life is not oriented at all with Christ-like compassion or love or affection, Lord, that you would break her heart tonight, that she would repent of her sinfulness and give her life completely to your Lordship. Lord, help us in these last days because there's many things pulling at our affections. There's many things every day we wake up and there's something new happening in our world and It seems like things are happening so quickly and there's a temptation to worry and to 
fret and wonder what is going to happen. Lord, may we be focused upon that personal relationship with you. We know, Lord, that there is a bigger kingdom to come, and may we work for that one, the one that will endure forever and ever. And I pray this, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.